0: In your Bible to Acts chapter 28. <clears throat> For those who have been paying close attention, we are drawing unbelievably close to the end of the book of Acts. Some of you were not sure, would we make it to the end of Acts? But we have almost arrived. If planning goes the way I'm hoping, we will finish next Sunday the book of Acts after about a year and a half or so in the book. And it has been a, a wonderful book to study, it kind of gives the the structure of really the New Testament church and a lot of the New Testament letters find their way around uh, some of the events in the book of Acts. I'm going to read the passage at least twice really through today. I'm going to read it once right now, and I'm going to do so with the help of a map just because there's, it's just hard to follow some of, these, uh, some of the movings from place to place if you're not familiar with the names of these cities and locations. Uh, and so, uh, we will… if you look up at the screen just for a moment… Uh, this is the journey that Paul started uh, on a week and oh, two weeks ago, and uh, Paul made his way from Caesarea near Jerusalem, uh, north of Cyprus, across the Mediterranean Sea. They went down under Crete. They were going to spend the winter on Crete. That was Paul's thought; he thought it would be safer. But instead, they risked it. And uh, as they began traveling again, they got into a two-week-long storm on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I I heard one man who's, I guess, a professor who used to be in the Navy, and he said that their uh, Navy ship went through the Mediterranean Sea in this very location when he was, you know, probably in his early 20s, and he said that they they heard about the Northeaster, this incredible wind that comes during a certain time of the year. And he said, I went out on deck, and he said the wind was so strong I had to lay down because the wind was knocking me over, and he said, uh, he had red hair, and he said, I went back into the boat, and he said, my skin was the same color as my hair when I got back into the boat. Is what he said. I was just red from all over, from the, from the wind burn of what was happening out there. So they got caught in something like that. For two weeks, they could not hardly see the sky. They ended up drifting into a little island called Malta. If I zoom in on the map here a little bit closer, you can see uh, the island of Malta right here, where they spend uh, about half of today's passage. And then somewhere, in, perhaps in mid February, somewhere in that range, they find it safe enough to head up, and you can see here where they're going to go. So, we'll, we'll see that they're going to go to Syracuse, which is right here, uh, uh, and then they head to Regium, and then they make their way up to, I believe it's pronounced Putioli, and then they head up closer and eventually get to Rome. So that's the traveling of today's passage. And let's read the text here, Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of the Lord, "'After we were brought safely through He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Gotta love that. Okay, verse 7. Not the only time that's happened to Paul, if you remember in the book of Acts, that he's been mistaken for a god. Uh, Verse 7, he does not like that. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, Who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There were found brothers, uh, and there we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three, three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him." Okay, that, we're going to look at this passage today in three points. I've I've titled the sermon today, uh, From Malta to Rome, Common Grace and Christian Kindness. Common Grace and Christian Kindness. There are three points the passage breaks into. Uh, Verses 1 through 11 is Paul and the Malton natives, Paul and the Malton natives. Number 2, verses 12 to 15, is Paul and the Roman saints, and the last verse, verse 16, is Paul and the Roman saints soldiers. We will start with uh, verses 1 through 11, Paul and the Malta natives. I'm going to begin rereading our text back in verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Now, when I first read through this passage, I just wasn't sure what I was going to say about some of this. I thought, how how do you turn this into a sermon exactly? And then, as so often happens with teaching, and many of you know this from different—if you've done a Bible study or anything like that—sometimes you'll get your assigned passage and you read it with great excitement, and then you read it. You go, I know this is the word of God. I know this is really good. I don't quite know what to say about it. And then, what 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 many of you have had this experience where you you have to sort of sit onto this thing. You you, you 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 sort of have it almost like a a Hall's cough drop, right, when you got a cough. You sort of just place it in your mind and just sort of let it sit there for a while. And over time, the text begins to sort of diffuse through your mind and your imagination. And before long, day three, you start to see things that you did not see in day one of the passage, when you're first looking at the passage. And before long, you start to see a lot of very interesting topics. And uh, that is one of the great things about meditating on Scripture. So this is not really a point from the passage. It's more just a point about this passage in general or the Bible in general. When we study the Bible, let us not read too quickly the Bible. I, I, I understand there, 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 is, there is a thing to be said for reading large part, portions of the Bible in a single sitting. There are times where it is just great to sit down and say, I'm going to read the first 22 chapters of Genesis today, and you can go for it. Okay? That may not be an everyday experience, but there's a time to read large portions of the Bible in one city to get the overall 30,000-foot view in the airplane of this is the terrain of what's going on here, broadly speaking. But, and Scott said something along these lines in Sunday school, I do think that we need to, yes, have our devotional time with the Lord, but I think when possible we need to try to carve out a half hour here, a half hour there, uh, where we can really just sit down if you're a coffee drinker, a cup of coffee might help you. Sit down with, with the Bible, maybe a good study Bible, a couple of study Bibles or a commentary, and just sit down and spend a, l- a lengthy amount of time on a smaller amount of Scripture. Instead of maybe reading five chapters in a sitting, maybe just reading one chapter several times over the course of a week and letting that Scripture begin to sort of have a control over you, begin to influence how you think. And y- I mean, how many of us have seen this? You start seeing things in the text that are, that are astonishing the longer you spend with it. So there's much to be said for meditating on God's Word. Well, one thing we can think about in this passage is these, these native peoples. Uh, I believe the King James translates it barbarians or something along those lines. Now, that, that's a literal translation from the Greek, it's where we get the word barbarian. It literally means someone who does not speak Greek and usually someone who is not as cultured in Greek culture. So a, a barbarian wasn't so much an insult as it was just saying someone who doesn't have the Greek culture or Greek language. And so these natives on the island, it it is it is… It seems very likely that these are not in any way people who had exposure to even the Old Testament, perhaps much at all. They were not exposed to biblical Christianity, and Paul and his companions may be the very first Christians that they have ever met, okay? So what what does that mean? Well, we learned several things here about God's common grace in the world. Common grace is a fascinating doctrine. The older I get as I've studied it, you know, the more I want to go back and study it more. I feel like I never have as strong a grasp on this doctrine as I would like. But there, there are two things. One is called common grace, and one is called general revelation. And these are things that are both accessible to non-Christians. In fact, not just non-Christians, they're accessible to people who have never heard the name Jesus once in their life. These are people who've never heard of John 3.16. They've never heard the statement, God is love. They've never heard any of these things. They have no exposure whatsoever to the Bible, and yet they still have access to general revelation, God's revelation to us through nature, through what has been made, and they also have access to God's common grace. Now, through God's common grace, human beings are not as evil as we could be. No human being is as evil as they could be. Now, I heard someone mention, I never thought about this actually until this week, a commentator mentioned this, demons when they fell, so you remember this, before uh, Genesis 3, somewhere early in creation, God created, it seems as though perhaps billions, I don't know how many, hundreds of millions of angels, and Satan fell, and when he fell, he led many of the angels with him. Perhaps Revelation 12 is teaching that a third of the angels fell when a third of the stars fell with the, the ancient dragon. And when those angels fell, they became known as demons. Now, demons along with Satan, when they fell, they became as evil as you can be. There is no common grace in the sense of, just, there's, a, there, you know, there, there's no, there's no uh, even natural affection for human beings in demons. They only want what is spiritually and eternally destructive for all of us all the time. That is all they're after. And if they can give you riches to get it, they'll give it to you. If they can give you poverty to give it to you, they don't care. They just want your circumstances to come at you in such a way that you don't trust in Jesus or think of Jesus, but that you go another way. They are truly, totally corrupted in their sin. Now, unbelieving people, even people who've never heard the Bible, they can show true outward, at least, kindness to others. Here, they treat Paul with unusual kindness and they kindle a fire for them. We're later told that Publius, entertained them hospitably for three days, and we were told in verse 10 that they were honored greatly, and when they were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. There's no mention of any of these people being believers. So, lest we be confused, this is a significant point that we need to remember. In the Bible we are told that without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must believe that God exists and we must believe that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We're also told in Romans that um, anything in our life that does not proceed from faith in Jesus is sin. I mean, just imagine the implications of statements like that we're told in romans 8 that those who are in the flesh that is unbelievers we were all unbelievers at one point some of us perhaps still in this very moment are unbelievers and we, we welcome you here to hear this very message but we, we we were all at one point in our flesh those who are in the flesh we're told cannot please god why because our sinful mind is hostile to god it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot do so so we are not saying that these natives were honoring the Lord out of some sort of love for the Lord in these moments as they showed kindness. But they did have still God's common grace. So, common grace keeps us from being as bad as we could be, but it's not the same thing as the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the new birth. Does that make sense, this distinction here? So we, we should not be surprised. We should be, we should be thankful when unbelievers show us great kindness. There are so many ways you, your doctor may not be a believer. You may be at the hospital being treated, and the nurses and doctors may not be believers who are taking care of you. There is tremendous kindness that can be shown to us from the unbelieving world, and we should not ignore that. We should thank the Lord for that. In His common grace, that is something that the Lord so often gives. Let's see how Paul responds. Verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them in the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, I cannot read this without smiling. Listen, if it was me with my sinful tendencies, you've been at — okay, so can we just rewind the tape? If, if, if Paul's flesh was in control here at this moment, just imagine, okay? So Paul goes to Jerusalem trying to do the right thing. A riot starts over something he did not do. He's falsely accused of something he did not do. He's arrested for no reason, while he's being beaten for no reason. He then gets locked up. They're about to kill him, the people who won't eat for 40 days or whatever, till they kill Paul. Paul gets shipped off to Caesarea by night with all the soldiers. He's in Caesarea for two years. Nobody will let him go, although there's no evidence against him. Finally, he gets a boat ride to Rome so he can go clear his case before Nero Caesar. He gets on the boat. No one listens to him when he offers sound advice. Instead, they go against Paul's advice. They go into a storm that lasts for two weeks. The storm, they almost nearly die. They barely survive. They shipwreck on Mount Malta. They have to jump out of a boat that's caught on on a sandbar and that's breaking up and it's incredibly dangerous. They float to shore. They're freezing cold. I mean, it may have been in the 50s, but if you're soaking wet, it's really cold. And they get out onto the beach and Paul, Paul is actually being helpful. He shows this leader. I mean, talk about a servant leader. Paul doesn't just say, hey, you guys pick up the sticks. This is the Apostle Paul. He can say, you you guys, I'm not picking up sticks. I just saved all your lives. You guys pick up the sticks. But no, Paul is a humble man. He doesn't speak like that. He goes, he's doing the humble task of picking up the sticks. He gathers them together on a fire. Because it was cold, one of the sticks was not a stick. He found out some kind of apparently venomous snake comes out of the fire when the fire warms the snake up. You know, the snake kind of wakes up. Says, I don't really like what's going on here with this fire. The snake comes out, latches onto Paul's hand. If there was ever a moment in my flesh where I would say, seriously like i'm trying and one thing after another and now i get a poisonous snake bite so but paul has incredible trust in the lord in this moment i don't know that i would be as trusting but paul has incredible trust in the lord he just calmly shakes off the viper into the fire poor snake is is now gone Uh, he shakes him off into the fire and paul just sits back down and you know is helping get the fire going now all by the way there's a lot of lessons we can learn here Okay? Seriously, it is so easy. Tell me if this is true. It is sometimes easier, not always, it is sometimes easier to actually trust God when it comes to the big trials of life, and sometimes it's actually harder to trust Him with the little trials of life. Whether it's a two-week-long shipwreck, you know, two-week-long voyage that leads to shipwreck and a storm or it's this little moment of this fire. Whatever it is, big or small, Paul is unflinchingly, unflappingly just trusting in the Lord no matter what in this moment. So he shakes the snake off. Look at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God." Now, (laughs) there is some humor here. If you're wondering, does the Bible ever have any irony or humor? I think Luke absolutely intends us to read this with a bit of a smile on our face, the fickleness of this crowd. So just one thing to remember, crowds can be wrong and they can also change their minds on a dime. We should not be like the worst form of politicians, I will not say this of all politicians, although I don't know the number here, but a lot of times what you'll see with politicians is they will lick their finger, they will put it up into the air, And they go, oh, the wind is now turning this way. Well, then my policies are gonna turn that way. Oh, popular opinion doesn't like that. Well, then I'm not gonna like that. Oh, wait, they they changed their mind. Okay, I've been saying this for the last 20 years, but now I'm gonna change on a dime because I wanna get reelected and whatever it may be. So there there can be a pressure for us as Christians to want to put the the finger up in the air and say, okay, where is the cultural wind blowing? Okay, I'm gonna sort of navigate in that kind of way. But you see here the madness, the folly of going with the currents of the culture because they will change on a dime and both the conclusions they make about Paul are wrong. So the crowd has two radically opposite views of Paul, both of them dead wrong. Paul is not a murderer, and Paul is not a God, and he'll be the first to tell you neither of those is true. Well, if, dot, 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 okay. His previous life, it was true okay as Saul of Tarsus he was involved in the killing of Christians that is true but now as a believer as a forgiven person that is not the way of of his life at all anymore so they they are wrong about what they are assuming here about Paul but we learn something else here about common grace number one look look back verse four middle of the verse no doubt this man is a murderer though he's escaped from the sea justice has not allowed him to live now justice here should probably be capitalized. I think most translations capitalize the word justice here, referring to a female god. I I believe she was the daughter of Zeus in Greek mythology. And if she would keep watch on who was doing right and wrong, and she would report back to her father Zeus, and then Zeus would come bring vengeance if you were disobeying. So the idea here is they have this pagan notion of justice, this god, this mythological being, uh, is, is after Paul. Now, as incredibly distorted as that view is, There is a distorted notion of something true, which you see in general revelation and common grace underneath their misunderstanding. Do they have a sense of true right and wrong, these Molten people? Yes, they do. Do they also believe that there's real right and real wrong and that real evil should be punished? Do they believe in some kind of justice? Do they believe in something like murder is bad, that it should be punished? They have a sense of right and wrong. And they have a sense that wrong should be punished with, in this case, uh, it sounds like death. He should not be allowed to live. They have a strong sense of that. But where it comes from and what it means is very distorted with their mythology. Flip with me one page over to, back to Romans 1, where we were at the beginning of the service. Should be right over the next page. Romans chapter 1. I mean, if there is a chapter of the Bible that just... I mean, they all do, but if there's any chapter that just gets better, the more you read it. Romans 1 is so helpful in thinking about so many things today in our culture. I will not read the whole chapter, but there's so much here. But let me read several parts. Let's start back where we ended. Let's start in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, just pause there. This includes people who've never read the Bible once in their life, okay? And we are told that they, it doesn't say that they are ignorant of all the truth, that they don't have any truth. It says that there is a tendency to suppress and distort what is true, what they know is true deep down, because God has made them in His image. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse." Why are they without excuse? Verse 21 keeps going, "'For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools.'" Now what is foolishness in the Bible, verse 23? This is foolishness, and we've all done it. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they, here it is again, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." Look with me down at the last verse. Though they know, so this is, this is all of us, everybody, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Do You see what Paul's saying here? Even people who've never read the law of God or the Bible, there is an innate sense of right and wrong. It's called our conscience. Our conscience is not perfect. It is not an infallible guide. Sometimes it can be distorted, it can be manipulated, it can be seared, like with a hot iron where you don't even feel anything anymore because if you keep violating your conscience long enough, your conscience stops sounding the alarm, right? And so, but we all have a conscience. We can suppress it, we can ignore it, we can go against it, but we all have a conscience. And what, what Paul's saying here is we know deep down that the actions that we participate in, Which are listed here in verses 29, 30, 31. We we know that these things are wrong. To be a gossip, to be a hater of God, to be boastful, to be disobedient to parents and authorities, to be heartless and ruthless. We know that these things are not right. We know that that the wages of these sins is death. And yet, even so, we try to give approval to these behaviors and do them ourselves. And so turn with me back to Acts 28. What we see is here, there is a real sense of right and wrong that these Maltons have. They believe that evil should be punished, that justice should be done, but their understanding of it has been manipulated into a false system of idols. Just like Paul said, we don't worship the true God, we worship false gods. We we, we turn uh, created things into idols that we bow down to and worship, and they are even willing to call Paul a deity. Talk about turning the creation into a deity. They worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator? Yeah, they're worshiping, they're ready to worship Paul himself as God. And so we see here, common grace and general revelation are, are not sufficient in and of themselves. We need the gospel to be what saves us, but they are still here, and they are accountable for what they, what they know in this section. Let's continue here with the leader of the island, verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands that belonged to the chief man of the island, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." Now, I am no expert on this point, but I read about this and almost all the commentaries talk about this. In the 1800s, there was something discovered uh, that is actually called today Malta fever. Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fever uh, that comes from a microbe in the goat's milk on the island of Malta. It was it was finally named and figured out what it was in the 1800s uh, somewhere in that area but this is likely what Publius's father actually had perhaps he was drinking from the milk of the goats on the island or some or, or the meat or something along those lines and he had gotten what is today called malta fever which has fever and dysentery attached to it which would, could last for four months you could be sick with it you could even have it for two or three years and it was a, it was a horrific thing Paul prays for him so we know Paul spoke about God we don't get a lot of details but he talked about God he prayed and he he laid hands and and this man was healed and the rest of the island came to be cured. If you, we won't turn there, but in Luke 4 verses 38 to 40 at the beginning of Luke Acts, Jesus does something very similar. In in the Capernaum uh, where Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever, Jesus rebukes the fever, the fever leaves, and what happens? She gets up to serve serve Jesus and the disciples, and all the people in the surrounding area bring those who are sick, and Jesus heals them as well. So you see the ministry of Jesus being continued through the ministry of of Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. Alright, let's uh, look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria in Egypt, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, the twin gods, some of your Bibles have a footnote. Their names were Castor and Pollux, and they actually had a constellation, Gemini, Uh, named after them in the sky. If sailors saw the Gemini constellation with Castor and Pollux, the twin gods, they were to see that as a sign of good fortune or good luck uh, in their their travels. These two gods were supposed to keep you safe as you went sailing. And again, I think Luke includes this for the simple sake of irony for all the readers reading. I mean, you can almost picture Paul about to get on the boat. He looks up at the front and there's this big, probably carving on the very front of the boat. Have you all seen these before in these old boats? They'll have these carvings of gods on the very front of the boat. And so they have this carving of the twin gods. These Greek gods are supposed to keep you safe on your boats, on your travels. And it, you know, I heard somebody say, you know, Paul must have looked over and at it and said, you know, is this, these guys are pretty effective here, keeping us safe. I wish we would have had them on the last boat, is what Alistair said. Why don't we have those two guys on that last boat? Because it did not go so well for us. But clearly, anybody reading this knows what Luke is intending. Luke just told us for a long chapter, chapter 27, The Lord God, uh, the Father of Jesus Christ, is the only God who can keep you ultimately safe from the storm, as we saw in the previous chapter. It was not the Greek and Roman gods. So they get on this boat, and let's move. This is point number two. These next points will go a little bit quicker. Point number two, Paul and the Roman saints. This is verses 12 to 14. Verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putioli, And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now, um, Alistair Begg told this story about this particular point where he said uh, he was taken, I believe he was taken out to, to see this incredible, he, he was, someone paid for his family to go on this fancy vacation where they got to go see this beautiful mountain range. And he said, man, you know, when I get back from that, I want to talk about the mountains we saw. He said, we saw some incredible things. He said, but what sticks with me in my memory is actually not the sights that we saw with the mountain range and all that we got to experience. He said, what actually sticks in my mind as my favorite part of the trip is our family ended up climbing up this little hill to a little church, a little chapel. He said, we climbed this little building and there was a a minister uh, leading a time of prayer. And he said, there was probably about 20 people total in this room on this trip." He said, we didn't know anybody at this church. You know, we just we found our way to this prayer meeting and we got in there and we had this evening of prayer. And he said, when I look back on that trip, he said, the time of fellowship with those sweet believers that I just met that night and the closeness we felt in the Lord's presence, he said, it was sweeter to me than the Alps. It was sweeter to me than anything else I could have seen. He said, and, and when Luke looks back on the travel log, there are so many things he could have mentioned. So many sights and tastes and smells, all the different things that they would have experienced as they're heading to Rome, at least for Paul, for the very first time. Think about all the things you would want to post on social media from that trip. You're heading to Rome, all the things that you would want to mention. What does Luke talk about? He says, here's where we found some believers. We stayed with them for a few days and we found some more believers. We stayed with them for a few days. Then we got to this other place and some believers came from Rome. And then we got to another city and some more believers came. When Luke looks back, he doesn't see any of the sights and sounds. He sees... Where were God's people? We got to have fellowship with these believers for a full week. It was incredible. We got to have fellowship with these believers for a few days. We got to meet these believers at this particular city. We had never met before. There's no indication Paul would have met any of these Christians before in his life. And yet they were bound together by their union in Christ. And I've mentioned this before. We all know what it's like to go to a city that maybe you've never been to or a country that you've never been to, and to be around God's people in a place where you know almost no one who is there. In some cases, they may even speak a different language from a language that you speak. And yet there is this immediate sense of unity and union in Christ. It is the most astonishing thing. You could be anywhere in the world, and if you are around true believers who truly love the Lord, then you share in common the most important thing that is in their life. And it is the most important thing in your life, and so there's this immediate bond. The world has false versions of this, maybe through like a bond of like maybe athletics or whatever it may be where we we share a sports team in common. There's something to that. I'm not not saying that's bad or wrong, but there is something so much more superior to the and the unity that we have in Christian fellowship. Challenge to, to maybe all of us, how do we think about the Sunday gathering that we're doing right now? I mean, we're here, if we're being honest, there are weeks probably that we sort of drag ourselves to church, other weeks we can't wait to get to church, but do we really prize the relationships that we have in this room the way that we could or should think about all that is available, all all that God has for us through His people in this place. And think about the gift that this is to us. Think about all the ways that you have been encouraged by something that someone else in this room has said to you personally. Think about some time that someone came up and encouraged you about something. You were discouraged that day. You felt like you had nothing to contribute to the world. Someone came up and affirmed a gift that the Lord has in your life, encouraged you, spoke a word of kindness to you, and it changed the way you were thinking about that whole week coming up. Think about someone who's prayed for you when you were going through a difficulty. You didn't even know they were praying for you. You find out later this person was praying for you as you went through a trial. And just think about the sense of fellowship that is there. How has the Lord already used words of encouragement, Words of truth, speaking the truth in love, and the prayers of everyone here for one another in the last years since we have been a part of this church. I, I, I don't think we really understand sometimes the treasure that we have in the saints and in the people of God. Look with me here at uh, verse 15. The brothers there, when they heard about us, these are the brothers in Rome, came as far, far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage." Th- this verse unexpectedly stirred me up this week. I was moved several times reading this verse this week. It's kind of hard for me to explain. But the fact that it says Paul took courage. Paul was, I mean, he, he was human. And Paul had been through a lot. I, mean, I, I know I've been kind of making a joke of some of that, but it's, it's not a joke. And Paul, Paul is making his way to Rome. This is what he knows. He's been through every kind of trial you can imagine for the last few years. Massive trials just a few weeks ago. He's heading to Rome and he does not know probably how his letter to the Romans was received in the first place. He wrote that letter. He took off to Jerusalem He was put in jail. I don't know that he knows fully how the Roman church has responded to what he wrote in that letter. So he's had three years to wonder. And now he's heading to that church in change of all things. So he looks really a man of low reputation. A man you would not want to associate with. You don't want to associate with somebody in the local jail who's a prisoner there. Here's Paul chained to a Roman soldier. He does not know fully how they're going to respond. He's been waiting to find out for three years after writing that incredible letter to the Romans, to that church. And on his way there, I don't know how many, perhaps dozens of members of the Roman church travel 33 plus miles to meet Paul on a city way outside the city limits of Rome. And when Paul saw them, it says he thanked God and took courage that just he, he knew the Lord promised I was going to get here, and guess what? I got here. The Lord has kept his promise to me, and the people of Rome have received me well. Generally speaking, he was well received. There were some people who did not like Paul in Rome. We know from Philippians 1. We'll look at that in a moment. But he, he was generally well received by the believers there, and I think Paul was deeply encouraged. Look with me at the last point here. Number three, and this is just one verse, but I'm going to also look at Philippians 1. Uh, Paul and the Roman soldiers, verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Turn with me here to Philippians chapter 1, to your right. Philippians chapter 1. I really do feel like we are coming full circle at this moment. If you remember, about two years ago, we were in Philippians. We went through the book of Philippians, which takes place as far as chronology goes. The book of Philippians is written during the last two verses of Acts. So the the last two verses of our chapter when Paul's in house arrest, that's when he writes Philippians and a few other letters. Okay, so we're coming full circle back to this moment. Paul's chained to a Roman guard. And here's the, the last kind of point of application I want to make before we start moving towards communion. It would have been so easy for Paul to be living in either the future or the past in this moment. Because everything slowed down for him in terms of his schedule, in terms of where, where he wants to be. He wants to be in Spain planning churches. Right now he's chained to a Roman guard. But Paul does not get stuck. Now listen here, this is, this is important. We, it's not sinful to think about our past and to learn from it. We should think about our past conversion and learn from it. We should be amazed by it. We should look back at our life before we met Christ, see our sinfulness and be deeply stirred that Christ saved us. There's nothing wrong with looking back if we are being stirred on by it. We don't want to get dragged down by our past, but we want to, we want to look back in an appropriate way. It's also not wrong to think about the future, to plan for the future. Paul certainly had done that. But if there's ever a temptation, it can be oftentimes to not want to live in the present moment. It is so easy to get caught up in what has happened or what will happen or what we want to have happen. And it can be so hard to actually love others in this moment, pray in this moment, seek God in this moment, not harden my heart in this moment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Paul, in the moment where he is chained to a guard, seemingly frozen in terms of his schedule, here's what he writes. Here's how he's been handling that. Not only has he been praying, look at verse 12 of Philippians 1, writing this from that imprisonment in Rome. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Listen, I know we've covered this before. We talked about it in Philippians, but just listen again to this. I know you know it. Paul is chained to a guard. Commentators differ, but he was likely cycled with guards several times a day. So one guard chained to one of his arms, and then, or it could have been a leg. But I'm not sure that that details there. He's chained, and then they will switch out. So a guard will come every so many hours, and they'll switch out. And so Paul is sitting next to these guys. Probably a lot of them are in their 20s, and they're chained to Paul. And uh, as people have often said, we're not actually sure who was chained to who. <laughs> Paul says, oh, you're chained to me. I think you're, yeah, you're actually the one in captivity because you're going to get about the next four hours of gospel is what you're about to get, sir. So this guy's like, he goes home to his wife. He's like, honey, you will not believe. This guy will not stop talking about this Jesus figure. And so we're not really sure who is chained to who. But Paul says, okay, Lord, if this is where you have me, you have me under house arrest. You have me chained to a Roman guard. It's going to last for two years before I get out of here. I'm going to make the best use of this moment. This is an inconvenient moment in my life, but guess what? There's a non-Christian chain to me, and I'm going to give him a whole lot of gospel. And we are told that the entire Roman guard, the Praetorian guard, the the entire Imperial guard hears that his imprisonment was for the Messiah, Christ. They they, they all, all the guards knew. They would, they'd get back and start, you know, gossiping, right? You know, the, the soldiers are back in the barracks somewhere. and They're going, man, did you have Paul last night? Yes. Oh, man, Paul. I don't know if the guy sleeps or not, but he's sitting there reading me these old these scriptures from the Hebrew God. He's telling me about their Messiah. And no doubt, some of them came to know the Lord Jesus. If you look at the last section of the book of Philippians, look at the very end. I don't want to make too much out of this, but if you look at the last paragraph there, the verse 21 or so. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Maybe some of those were converted when Paul was there. I'm not sure. But Paul is at work trying to lead as many of them to Christ as he possibly can. Now, turn with me here to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I think there can be a danger with things that we do regularly, like the Lord's Supper, that it can become routine. It can become rote. It's just something that we do almost mechanically, perhaps without taking it as seriously as as we should. I'll just tell you for just a personal little moment here, uh, over the last two weeks or so, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but one aspect of the cross has ha really gripped me on several different days over the last two weeks. This thought gripped me. So what is it that's motivating Paul's life? It's, it's Jesus, and it's most specifically this gospel, this gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. And the, the part of the cross that just has gotten me the last couple weeks weeks is, is this. Nails were driven through Jesus' wrists and feet. I've just been thinking about that the last couple weeks. Nails. Um, archaeologists have dug up one, remain, the remains of one man who, still, who was crucified. It's an ankle bone of a man who was crucified from the first century in the Jerusalem area, and the nail is still in his ankle. They were apparently unable to remove it And you can see it in a museum, you can see it online, the ankle bone and the nail going straight through the bone. I've just been thinking about the fact that in heaven right now, like there's a day coming where we will see Jesus face to face. Revelation 20 verse 4, we will see his face. That will be number one for what we're looking forward to. It's not your departed relatives, as wonderful as that may be. It will be seeing Jesus face to face, But this is the thing that just got me. I don't know that I've even hardly thought much about this. We will see the nail marks on his wrists and on his feet. We will see the mark of the spear in his side. One pastor said, perhaps the only man-made thing in heaven are the marks on the body of Jesus. The very thought that what Thomas was asked to do, I may one day be asked to do. Come and put your hands in these marks. I mean, the, the fact that God the Son has the marks of nails on His hands and feet is astonishing. Just think about that. Five to six inch long railroad spikes sharpened by Roman soldiers, lifted up and driven through the median nerve in His wrist, through the ankle bone in His feet, and the, 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 the spear through His side. This is Christ's love for us on display. It is the cost that he was willing to pay in order to rescue you from a fate that you and I desperately deserve. And we are told that his his marks on his wrists and feet in John, when he comes into that room and they're all afraid, it says, he showed them the wounds and there was comfort and peace. There is strange comfort in the tortured body of Christ. There is strange comfort in the wounds of Christ. And that's what we remember at this table. So let me read for you from 1 Corinthians 11. as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup." Martin Luther once said that we all walk around with his nails in our pockets because the reason those nails are there is because of your sin and mine, and it is because of the love of Jesus that they were allowed to be placed there. It was not ultimately the nails that held him to the cross, it was his love of his Father to glorify his Father and his desire to save his bride, the church. If you are not a believer today, Uh, we would ask that you not come forward to partake of these elements. We would ask instead that even where you sit, that you would speak to the Lord and that you would ask him to rescue you from yourself, that you would ask him to save you from your sin because of what Christ has done on the cross to pay that penalty, if we will trust him. If you are a believer and you are not walking in deliberate, unrepentant sin, we would ask that you come forward after I'm done praying, that you would take of the elements and return to your seat, and that by so doing, you would be in your own heart, desiring to be free of sin and desiring to honor the Lord with your life as a trusting and thankful response to what Christ has done for us. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I do ask that, like Paul, we would love... Unbelievers unbelievers who are extremely kind, we'd be thankful for that in Your common grace. Unbelievers uh, who do not treat us with the love and respect that we would desire, I pray either way that we would be bold and humble and gracious, that we would serve them and that we would speak Your truth to them boldly. Lord, I thank You for the fellowship of other believers who have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from our fathers, with, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the lamb, a lamb without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. And uh, God, I thank you that you have united us to each other because we are united in Christ your Son. Help us to be bold with others. Lord I, Lord Jesus, thank you that in this very moment, in this very moment, as you sit at the right hand of the Father, that the marks of the nails, the, the marks of the spear are still present and are still able to be seen. And Lord, we do look forward to the day when we will see you face to face and when we will uh, be able to see those nail marks. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless this time, that you would help us to repent of sin, that you would help us to live lives of holiness. And I pray you would be honored. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.